0: Isn't that crazy? You might have noticed if you've been driving on a road recently that population is increasing. And with that means a lot of people, uh, they need to hear about Jesus. And so I'm just really grateful for all of the, the life-giving churches in this, this community. It's not a competition. We're really grateful for all the churches. And today we have a real treat to invite the pastor of LifeGate Church here in Denver, Narupa Alphonse, to come Preach in just a moment. He's an awesome guy. He killed it first service. So, as Ryan likes to say, lean in because you want to hear what he has to say. Take notes. He likes that. He also wants you to be loud. So, please be like crazy, wicked loud. Narup's been uh, founder of this church five, six years ago. The church is thriving, doing absolutely amazing. Uh, He's been married to Hannah for about 12 years. He's got three kids. He has a word from God for us today. And so I'm going to ask you guys to give a warm, hearty South Fellowship welcome to our dear friend, Narup. Narup, would you come? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, as I said in the first service, when people clap for me, I blush, you just can't tell, but I am. (laughs) Hey, if you have your Bible, would you turn to the Gospel of John? It's the third Gospel in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Uh, Actually, this is the fourth Bible, I guess I can't count. I'm Indian, I should be able to count, that should be fairly easy. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 2, we'll get there in verse 1 in just a quick second. just want to say thank you for the opportunity to be here with you this morning. I love South Fellowship Church, I love your staff. We have worked on several things together. When I first moved to Colorado four years ago, five years ago, to start the church with several people, South was the very first church that supported us, and just incredibly generous church. I think the heart of your church is so generous. We got robbed, not personally, not our family, but our church got robbed. They took everything, they took everything except for our communion plates, because that happened to be in my car. We had to take offering that morning in greasy McDonald's bags. Um, but your church is the very first church to step up and support us when that happens. So you have an incredibly generous church and the heart of your church is so kingdom-minded and I love that. We have three sons. I only brought one with me today because I didn't think the church had enough insurance to cover all three of them <laughs> back in kids. I'm like, we'll just bring one and that should help us out a little bit. So go to John chapter two, beginning verse one. Hey, so Larry talked about this for a second, but A, because, I, I, because the way I grew up, Um, because of the kind of church I grew up in. When when I preach, I love when people talk back to me. And so that's what our church does. You talk back to me. So basically, if I say something and you like what I say, you you let me know. Don't worry, it's not disrespectful. You let me know, like, "Mm mm-hmm, amen, come on. I like that. Come on, somebody. You tell them. And I'm gonna teach you something. It's called the deacon wave. You ready for the deacon wave? I put your hand down, put your right hand down and then slowly go up like this, and then just wave it, just like that. But you gotta put your head down. hmm that's the deacon wave. Now my wife, my wife who is white, tells me that the way that white people say amen is by taking notes. I'm not sure if that's true, <laughs> but that's what she said. We live in an interracial home. My, I'm, I'm brown, as you can tell. My wife is as white as the day is long. And my son, my son who, you know, he's like a native of Colorado, He's like, Dad, can we go camping? Let me stop you right there, son. Brown people don't sleep in tents, okay? We just don't do it. I don't know if like, I don't know if bears like dark meat. I'm not sticking around to find out. It's not gonna do it. So I said, if you and if you don't like what I say, that's fine. You can email larry.boatwright at southfellowshipchurch.org, and he'll take care of all those things. John chapter two, beginning of verse one. The title of my message this morning is The Gift of Scarcity. Now, you and I would typically not think that scarcity or lack, or let's say deficiency, would ever be a gift. But if you noticed in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, that Jesus loved to do miracles where there was scarcity or where there was deficiency or lack. One of my favorite miracles is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, most scholars would agree that it was more than 5,000, probably ten to 15,000 that Jesus fed. But Jesus didn't feed them because there was a ton of resources available. When he tells his disciples to feed them, their response is, well, we don't have anything. We lack the necessary resources to feed these people. So Jesus takes what they do have, and he performs a miracle. It's funny. We often think that God is asking us for things we don't have. When God asks you to surrender, he's asking you to surrender what you do have. Whatever it is that you have, which is usually never enough, God makes the miracle. And we see these miracle stories of Jesus where he continues to reveal his glory and his grace to the world, but it always started with a confession of, here's where I lack. I can't stand. Jesus, can you help me stand? Jesus, I'm sick. I lack health. Can you help me? Jesus, my daughter is sick. My son is sick. There's something that we need. Can you help me? And it's difficult for us because we live in a culture where you're never supposed to show signs of weaknesses. We live in a culture of self-hustle, self-righteousness, self-fulfillment, self-sufficiency, self-help. If you go to the bookstore, you'll see the biggest section in the bookstore is self-help. And I think in many ways those can be helpful, but there's a big difference between self-help and Jesus' help. See, self-help teaches you how to move through fear. Jesus teaches you how to live fearless. And there's a big difference. And so we live in a culture that says, don't ever be weak, don't show signs of weakness. You got to be strong. You got to always be on your point. Never show any signs that you need anything. And yet, the miracles and the power of Jesus are always present when his people admit, God, we have nothing. We got nothing. And Jesus moves. And my hope today is to look at this story and to show you not just the historical context, but the spiritual significance of what God is doing in your life and what God wants to do in your life, and that I believe God wants to move in your life in some way, in some situation, in some circumstance. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm fully believing that God desires to move in your life this morning. Will you believe with me? Let's look at the story in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is... The story known as the wedding at Cana, or it might be referenced as Jesus turning water into wine. Let me read this for us. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glories and his disciples believed in him. It's really an incredible story of Jesus showing up And performing a miracle and revealing his glory to the world. To the point where his disciples truly believed this is the son of God. This is the Messiah. Let's look at the historical context just for a moment and what this story sort of represents. Jesus is invited to a wedding. By Jesus being invited to a wedding with his disciples, it tells us that Jesus probably knew the family of whom this wedding was for. And as they get to this wedding, now now remember Weddings in the ancient Near East, or much like countries like India today, are, are not just a day affair, where you kind of show up for the wedding, you eat a little bit, and you leave, and you go home, and that's about it. These weddings would last for days, days. In fact, I remember growing up, my cousin's wedding was so long, growing up, when I was growing up in India, it was so long that my brother and I actually left the wedding to go home and watch a movie, came back, and the wedding was still going on. So we left again, played some video games, came back, and the wedding was still going on. I mean, this lasted for days, and this is what they're in. This is not just a a sort of a few-hour ordeal. This is a festival that the entire community would have been a part of. And something big happened at this particular wedding. The wine ran out. Now, in our day and age of the wine round, it's fine. We'll just run over to Costco, run over to Tipsy's, whatever you got to do, get some more wine, fire the caterer, give her a bad Yelp review because she clearly miscalculated how many people are going to come to this event. I heard the other day that Garth Brooks had a concert in the Pepsi Center and they ran out of food. They just miscalculated how much country fans eat. And so they ran out of food. And it's it's just sort of a bad catering deal, but not in the ancient Near East in the ancient near east if you ran out of wine this would bring great shame and humiliation to the family to the bride to the groom and to the entire family in dishonor on you dishonor on your cow dishonor on everybody <laughs> because it was an, it was a culture of honor and shame and so not having wine was a very big deal. In fact, there was an old Hebrew saying that said, where there is no wine, there is no joy. See, wine represented joy, that this was a, a festivist occasion, this was a joyful occasion, and now there's no wine, what will we do? And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, steps into Jesus and she says, Jesus, we have no wine. Now, it's interesting that the people that the no wine affects the most says, say nothing We hear nothing of these people, the the master of the feast, who's responsible for all the catering, the the bride, the bridegroom, the the parents of the bride and bridegroom. They don't say anything. I mean, that's who the shame would have affected the most. It wouldn't really have affected Mary. It would have affected them the most. And yet they say nothing. Now, pure conjecture. This is just pure conjecture. I wonder what they're doing. I wonder if they're getting together with a committee like, oh my gosh, we have to figure this out. You know what? This is what we should do. We should get a committee together. And we should get a committee to select the committee who will choose the committee to figure out what to do. That's what we'll do. Let's get a team together. Let's figure out, let's let's put our budgets together. Okay, you three run to that town. You figure out if you can get more wine. And they're trying to come up with their own plans. Hey, we're talented enough. We're smart enough. Maybe no one will notice that the wine ran out. Maybe that's what they're thinking. And it's odd that the people who could be most affected say nothing about this. And it's Mary who goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we have no wine. And I love the response of Jesus where he says, mother, now I don't know about you, but if I ever called my mother, I'm sorry, Jesus says, woman, woman, I don't know about you, but if I ever called my mom woman, it would be the last words uttered out of my mouth. (laughs) There would be no other words. It would, that would be at my funeral, like he made a mistake. It was, it was a poor choice of words and he is dead and buried. It says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, when Jesus says the word woman, it sounds as if he's rebuking his mother. It sounds rude almost, but not in their culture. In fact, if you, if you study the New Testament, you'll see the word that Jesus used for Mary was the same word that Jesus uses when he's on the cross, hanging on the cross. He looks at Mary and says, woman. It, it seems to be a, a word or a title of respect. And then Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, it's odd that, Mary would go to Jesus to figure this problem out. Because after all, Jesus is a carpenter. Now, I would understand if Mary said, Hey, Jesus, the tables are breaking. The chairs are not holding people's weight appropriately. Could you fix that? He has some skills to offer in this particular area. But last time I checked, Jesus was not a barista, was not a bartender, did not run a vineyard. What does this have to do with me? And it seems that Mary knows something about Jesus that the rest of the people don't know. It seems that she knows that Jesus is not like us. He operates at a different level. His resources come from a different place. In fact, his resources are abundant. He is not like us at all. And Mary's first response is to go to Jesus. It's funny, when situations arise in our life, Is it true that most of us often go to God as our last resort other than our first response? Once we've put the committees together, once we've figured out the budget, once we've figured out how to use this credit card to pay off this credit card to pay off this credit card, once we've figured out some advice from our parents and some good counsel or some other people, once we've read all the blogs, read all the books, and then at last resort, when none of that works, okay, now we'll go to God. Now we'll figure out with God. Anyone here have kids under the age of four? We'll pray for you after the service. It's going to be a special time of prayer. <laughs> have you noticed that children don't wait to come to you when something happens? Or oh, they come straight to you with whatever they're going through? Because they need you to fix it. They go to you as their first response, not their last response or their last reaction. So Mary goes all the way to Jesus and says, Jesus, we have no wine. He says, what does this have to do with me? Mom, what does this have to do with me? Now, don't you love when parents offer their children at the service of others without asking their kids at all? My mom would do this all the time growing up. Somebody would call the house, my mom would answer, oh, Betsy, what is going on? Oh, your dishwasher's not broken. Oh, it's broken, what to do? Oh, I said to my son, Noodle, go across the street and fix Betsy's dishwasher. Mom, <laughs> what in our 17-year history makes you think I know anything about that at all? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about this. My parents are always asking me to do stuff that I have no expertise in. None at all. My dad calls me in a, one time. He, my dad is visiting me. He comes and he says, Nirob, can you check my email? I'm like, sure. What is it? mpalphonse at I'm like, okay. So I have my laptop. Well, where do I go to log in? Click on the mail. Well, I can't do that. that this is my computer. It's set up to my email. In my computer, I click the mail and it shows up. I'm like, yeah, but... Because it's set up to your email. What, this, what, what's the server? Like Google or Yahoo? Is like, click the mail button. And I'm like, I'm I, 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 this is it. And you know, that, you know when you're so exasperated with your kids or your parents? You don't even have words. You're just like, it's like a special. You're like speaking in tongues. Like, click the mail button. And I was like, Dad, I, I can't do it. This is not how it works. I'm trying to explain to my dad. And I'm like, listen, I, I know I look like I'm an IT guy, but I'm not. I didn't even set up the Wi-Fi in our house. Hannah did that. I don't know anything about this. And he, and he looks at me and he goes, Mr. Big Short College Guy, get out of here. Can't even check my email. I'm like, what is happening right now? Don't you love when your parents are just like, oh, I think my kid could do that? It's just a volunteer your kid. And here's Mary just volunteering. Jesus never said like, oh, hey, by the way, I have the power of heaven on my side. I can do whatever I want. You want me to do it? I can do it right now. He doesn't offer anything. Mary comes to Jesus. And then Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Essentially, what Jesus is saying to Mary is, mother, you have no idea what you're asking. You don't know the price that I will have to pay in order for this to happen. But yet Jesus as loving and as kind, as gracious as Jesus is, responds in grace. And he tells the servants, go fill up these stone water jars with water and I'll turn them into wine. In fact, scientists would say that there is 300 chemical combinations that have to happen to turn water into wine. That's how powerful God is. He can do 300 chemical combinations like that. So you and I operate in what sociologists call plausibility structures. Plausibility structures is because of the the dawn of enlightenment and because of empirical evidence and because of science. We believe that things can only happen within a particular box. And as long as we stay in that box, we're comfortable in that box. Science works in this box. Mathematics works in the box. Biology works in the box. Philosophy works in the box. And as long as it stays in the box, I'm okay with life in the box. But God operates outside of the box. God operates outside of our plausibility structures. And I think one of the reasons that we don't see as many miracles in our context, in our Western world, is because we're closed off to the box. We think God only operates Here, now I'm not against medicine and no Christian should be. We're not against science, no Christian should be. We're not against philosophy, no Christian should be. But God does not operate in the same sphere that you and I operate in. Last time I checked, the Bible says that Jesus holds the world in the palm of his hands, that he is preeminent over all things, that he is supreme over all things, that he sees all things, knows all things, controls all things, does all things. He works outside of the box. And so he turns water into wine. The master of the feast tastes it, says, this is the best wine that I've ever tasted. And the entire party tastes this new wine, and joy is restored once again. And this was the first sign, the Bible says, the first sign. John records seven signs. This is the first sign where Jesus manifested, which means made known his glory. The infinite worth and the beauty and the splendor and the majesty and the wonder of God was seen in this miracle. And it says the disciples came to believe that he, in fact, was the Messiah. It's an incredible story of God working in a powerful way. Now, what exactly is the spiritual spiritual reality of what's happening and the spiritual significance of what's happening here? So let's unpack some of these things in the story that John specifically puts in the story for us. First, this story seems to revolve around a singular problem, which is the problem of wine or the necessity of wine. For the Hebrews, wine represented joy. There was a saying, where there is no wine, there is no joy. So wine represented joy. And to have no wine meant there was no joy. And the fact that this party, where people are gathering and they're dancing and they're eating. And they're celebrating all of life. They're throwing parades. They're laughing all night. And yet the fact that there is no wine represents the spiritual barrenness of Israel. Oh, they were full of spiritual activity. They had all the laws down, all the rules down, all the behavior down, but had no joy. So you can do all of the Christian things. You can go to church on time, never miss a Sunday. You can pray all the time. You can give all the time. You can tithe your 5%, which is so funny when people tell me they tithe 5%. I'm like, listen, tithe means 10th. It's odd that you, you just, you, and I'm talking to like 20-year-olds at our church. I'm like, that, that doesn't make any mathematical sense. Okay, tithe is a 10th. That's a different tangent. It's a different sermon for a different day. But you can do all those things. You do all the spiritual things all the time. You can even do your devotionals in the morning and you can Instagram it so everyone knows how spiritual you are and do the Old Testament because that means you're like a real Christian if you do the Old Testament. Like you're, you're, like, you're just like hardcore in Leviticus. I mean, that's where you live. You're pressing in right now into Numbers and Deuteronomy. Lamentations, you're like, ah, oh, I love lamentations. You're just there. You could do all the spiritual activity and yet have no joy at all. No joy in your life. Constant, constant brokenness, Bitterness, anger, frustration, desperation, but you have all the spiritual activity. And this was the nation of Israel. This was the people at the party living with much spiritual activity, yet no joy in their life. See, Jesus specifically chose six stone water jars. Why does Jesus choose six stone water jars? If he wanted to, he could have just snapped his finger and water could have entered into the wineskins and they would have fresh wine. Why does Jesus choose six stone water jars? One, because it was heavy. You couldn't move it. In order to get the wine, you have to go get the water and bring it into the stone. And secondly, because the stone, the water in the stone, were meant for purification rites. The the religious rites of the day, the cleansing laws that the people of Israel had. See, the, the people of Israel had laws for laws for laws for laws. Days of days of laws. And they couldn't eat or drink until they had purified themselves on the outside before they could actually partake of the presence of God and the presence with others. Now, for the Jewish people, the number seven represents the number of perfection. It's perfect, it's complete. The number six, as in six stone water jars, represents that which is incomplete or imperfect. Now, follow me on this. What Jesus is saying is that the six stone water jars represent the imperfection of the law. And Jesus has come to crush the imperfection of the law and pour in the perfection of new wine, the perfection of his grace, the perfection of his kingdom, the perfection of his promise, the perfection of his presence. The imperfect law was fixed or replaced with the perfect person of Jesus See, God gave the law to the people, and it was a good thing. It was a good thing. Follow these laws. Obey my laws. I will be your God, and you will be my people. But because humanity is corrupt because of our sin, because we are at enmity with God, the Bible says, we have corrupted the good things that God has given us. And they turned the law from something that was good into something that was corrupt, and it was actually crippling the people and their faith was dependent on the ability to follow the law, which they could not do. See, what the law is very good at is showing you and I that we are in need of a savior. In other words, the law is simply an x-ray. You need a savior because you are broken. If I went to the doctor and I said, doctor, my my foot is killing me. I think I broke it. The doctor says, great, let's take an x-ray. Takes an x-ray and says, oh, wait, look, based on the x-ray, You have indeed broken your foot. Okay, my foot's broken. What do we do next? We're just going to take another x-ray. And what do we do after that? We're just just going to look at the x-ray. We're just going to keep looking at the x-ray. Well, what would that do? The x-ray reveals that I'm broken, but the x-ray can't do anything. Has no power one bit to actually fix me at all. And what the law does is show you and show me that we are in desperate need of a savior. That you and I are born at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. That we want our things our way, my way, my time, my thing, and we are born wicked. Now, I argue with a lot of 20-year-olds in our church that tell me, like, I think we're born good. If you really believe that, I would pay you to babysit my three kids for one hour. (laughs) I have three amazing little kids, but not once, not once has my son woken up. Any of my kids woken up and said, Father, it is a glorious day to be in your presence. If only I might sit at your feet and serve you today, for you are most worthy to be called my father. How may I serve you today? Never once has that happened. Never once. They wake up like, Dad, I need some peanut butter. Now, make it happen. Once today, I'm like, listen, I don't work for you. And they look at me as if they're confused, like, you don't work for me? I don't work for you, kid. I I don't work for you. And that's how we often approach God. God, you work for me. Isn't that how this relationship works? And if we're honest with ourselves, we want from God when we want right here, right now, our way, and we will manipulate and we will trick and we will lie and we will steal and we will do all kinds of things to break the law to show us that we need a savior. Now you might think, well, I've never actually broken the law before. I've never broken the law. I've been a pretty good person my whole life. Well, see what Jesus does when he enters into our experience is he actually takes the law to the next level. And Jesus says, you may have never physically murdered anybody, but if you ever call someone an idiot, a fool, you've already committed murder in your heart. Which means every one of us, at some point this week, will probably commit murder between the hours of four and six as we go up and down Route 25. <laughs> Jesus says, you may have never committed adultery physically. But if you ever look at another person with a lustful intent in your, in your mind, you've already committed adultery. Well, then how then am I supposed to be perfect? See, in the church, there's this false teaching that says, well, God doesn't demand perfection. God, God loves you and accepts you as you are. Now, God does love you as you are. He says, God accepts you as you are. If God accepted you as you were, if God accepted me as I was, there would be no need for Jesus. Jesus died for nothing. The reality is God welcomes you as you are and loves you enough not to leave you the way he found you. Because the demand of God is perfection. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, how am I supposed to be perfect, God? How am I supposed to be a perfect husband and a perfect mom and a perfect son and a perfect daughter and a perfect employee and a perfect employer? How am I supposed to be perfect? How am I supposed to be perfect towards you? And the answer is you cannot be perfect before God without Jesus. When Jesus goes on the cross for your sake and for my sake, he exchanges all of your sin, all of my sin, for all of his righteousness, for all of his beauty, for all of his glory, for all of his perfection. And now you and I are holy and blameless before God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. God does not measure you based on the standard of your performance, but rather on the measure of Christ's sacrifice. You are now perfect before him. It reminds me of the old song, where the last verse says, "When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in Him be found, Fault, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne." When Jesus, when God looks at you, He doesn't see you; He sees His Son in you, His perfect, holy, spotless. Blameless, pure son. And Jesus says, I have come to bring the new wine of grace, the new wine of hope, the new wine of joy, the new wine of my kingdom. It's an incredible story of what God desires to do. And he says, my hour has not yet come. And every time in the text we see Jesus mentioning, my hour has not yet come, he's always referencing the cross because when Jesus has to turn new water into wine, he knows it'll cost him his life. Eventually, I'll have to go to the cross to really show you what this new wine is. I love the words of William Barclay. He puts it this way. Jesus saw his life not in terms of his wishes, but in terms of God's purpose for himself. He saw his life not against the shifting background of time, but against the steady background of eternity. All through his life, he went steadily toward that hour for which he knew that he had come into this world to bring you grace, to bring you joy, to bring you hope, and to bring you life. Because the law is not something that you and I can do. These stones were heavy. The law is heavy but grace is light and grace is free, which is why the invitation of the gospel, which is why Jesus says in Matthew 11:28, 28, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Anyone weary and heavy laden in this season of your life. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the invitation of the gospel. God is not in the business of modifying your behavior. No, God is in the business of transforming your life with his overflowing grace. And I love this story because it happens in a wedding. Now, I understand the wedding is significant for this family, but, but in, in the scope of eternity, we don't even know this family's name. It wasn't as if it was the first family. It wasn't as if it was the royal family. And we're like, oh, my gosh, this is a huge occasion. This is the royal family, and they got to have wine at this party. This is just a no-name family. We have no idea who these people are. Why does Jesus choose this occasion to have such a powerful miracle? See, I think if we're not, on, if we're not careful, we only believe that God operates in the extraordinary, in the big, vast things, yet it seems that God never wastes an opportunity to display his glory Or to demonstrate his grace even in the ordinary moments of life. That God is the God of the ordinary. God is the God of Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays. And what I've found in my life is is not that God is unable, but rather that we are unwilling. God is able to do, the Bible says, immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. But we are unwilling. No God I got a committee that can help me with this. No, God, I got great counselors who know what they're talking about. They can help me with this. No, God, I got the best team that money can buy. If I need you, I'll let you know. It's not that God is unable. It might be that we are unwilling to go to God. It might be that we are unwilling to admit, God, I am weak. God, I have nothing left. Because where does this miracle start? What is the thing that moves this miracle? What is the the conversation that propels this into action? See, this entire miracle was initiated by a confession. We have no wine. It began with a confession of what we don't have. And in a culture of self-autonomy, in a culture of self-idolatry, in a culture that is highly individualistic, in a culture that is full of self-sufficiency and self-strength and hustle, in a culture that says, I know I can, I can, I can, I will, I'm strong enough, I'm talented enough, you can do all things in yourself, in a culture that says that, the gospel that your power, that his power is made perfect in our weakness, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Is it possible that what God is waiting for in your life is for you to embrace the gift of scarcity, the gift of deficiency, the place in your life where you lack? And come on, this morning, what would it take for you to admit that somewhere in your life you lack courage, you lack faith, you lack strength, you lack wisdom, you lack peace, Lack joy, and instead your life is is more described as one who needs to be in control all the time, as one who always has to be right, someone who's constantly frustrated and disappointed and, and angry, and the one who can never let go of it must be their way. What place in your life is it? In your marriage? In your parenting? And for some of you, you're in an extremely difficult season of parenting because your kids have moved out of the house. They're 18 and they're gone, and their hearts are far from God. Their lives are far from God, and you are waiting on a miracle of God. You are waiting on that promise that says the seed that you planted in your child will not depart from them, and you're waiting on that miracle. Some of you are in a season of little kids. I know, I know this is where I'm at. There's times where I come home, and I, and I wish I didn't have kids because my life would be easier. My life will be a lot easier. There's times where I, I don't want to die to my wife. I don't want to die to myself, so I, I have to give to other people. There's times I don't want to sacrifice for the people at our church. And I'm trying to control everything myself. And is it possible that God is saying, hey, is there a place in your life? Maybe you got a, a health report from the doctor. Is there a place in your life where there's scarcity? And I love the way that Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't respond with condemnation because ask yourself, tell yourself this. It's not as if they didn't know the wine was running out. They knew the wine was running out. Just no one said anything. They knew it was running out, but they're trying to sort of manufacture their own response. What what will they do? And it takes a confession. We have no wine. And how does Jesus respond? Well, first, Jesus responds in his way. I will do it my way. Not the way you want me to. Not the way you think I should. I'll do it in my way. Then he responds in his time. Six stone water jars. They could not be moved. In order to fill these six stone water jars, the servants would have to go all the way to the well, fill in the bag, walk all the way back to the stones, and fill them up one at a time. That would have taken some time. See, if we're honest, most of us want microwave miracles. God, do it now. God, do it now. And God is saying there's a, there's a process And in that process, I'm going to increase your faith. I'm going to increase your prayer. I'm going to increase your joy. I'm going to increase hope in your life. But it's going to be a process, and it'll take time. And I will do it in my way and in my time and out of my abundance. See, I did the math on this because I'm Indian. I can do the math. I did the math. Six stone water jars to fill them up would have been 150 gallons of wine. That is more than enough wine than they needed. Jesus operates out of abundance. When God blesses you, when God anoints you, when God gives to you, he doesn't give to the brim or the cup. He gives you in a way that is overflowing. My cup runneth over. He gives you more than you need. His grace is abundant. His goodness is abundant. His mercy is abundant. And his mercy, the Bible says, is new every morning. You don't have to live on yesterday's wine. You can live on today's wine because today's wine comes out of abundance. And if you are a child of God, listen to me, if you are a child of God, all the resources of heaven are available to you. The gospel is not getting you to heaven. The gospel is getting heaven into you and God will do it for his glory. For his glory. Listen, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your circumstances I don't know what you're facing in your life, but I know if you will tell God, God, I have no wine. I am done. I have no wine. That he will do it in his way, in his time, out of his abundance, and for his glory. Which is why I think Jesus' first sermon begins with the words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you, you confess that God before you, I am bankrupt. I got nothing. In the words of Brendan Manning, we are all just beggars at the throne of God's mercy. So here's how we're going to respond this morning. I've been praying for you. We did this in first service and it was was incredible. If you're on staff here, if you're part of the prayer team, if you're an elder here, could I just have you come to the front and just take some space on this side and on this side over here? And here's what I'm going to ask the rest of you to do in just a moment. I want you to come to a place and ask yourself, where in my life, even one place, it doesn't matter how small or insignificant you think it is, it is a big deal to God. It is a big deal to God. He is a father who loves you and he cares for you. And I'm gonna ask you to step out in courage. And we saw this in the first service of people stepping out in courage. Where is there a place in your life where you can admit and confess, God, I have no wine. And as Aaron as the worship team sings, I want you to stand up Be courageous and stand up and have them pray over you. Have them speak life over you. Speak God's words over you. Speak his peace over you and his joy over you that you would leave here with the new wine of God's kingdom. Can I pray for you? Would you open up your hands and receive this morning? God, I ask for your spirit to fall afresh in this place right now. God, fill this place with the presence of your kingdom. God, fill this place. Pour out your new wine, God. Pour out your new wine. God, let it let it anoint this room. Let it anoint the people in this room from head to toe. God, cover them in the presence of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray against any word of the enemy, any lie that has been spoken over the enemy from the enemy, God, any lie that has been spoken to the hearts and the minds of people, God, we rebuke that in the name of Jesus. And God, we ask for your holy presence to fall here, that the presence of new wine would be here. God, would you bring your your restoration, your glory, your joy, your peace, your hope in this moment, God? Would you restore all that the enemy has taken away, God? Would you restore it out of your abundance? And right here, right now, would you bring us to a place of courage? Would you bring us to a place where we can admit we have no wine we could walk out of here restored in your presence. We love you, and together all of God's people say, amen. If that's you, anytime during the song, we just come and be